is uh, finding their seat, and I get a little drink of water. Um, just a reminder of um, basically this weekend we were supposed to have the picnic, but the email is supposed to have gone out. Has anybody gotten it? We had so many other emails going out. Uh, there will not be a picnic on Saturday. If you've been watching the weather, it's going to do the same thing it did last week. It's going to rain hard overnight, Friday night, and then the temperature is going to drop all day on Saturday down into the low 50s. So it's not going to be a good day for a picnic. So no picnic this Saturday. We're not postponing it. We're just canceling it. That's it. We gave it our first shot and second shot, and we'll see what the fall brings. I think that's the only uh, announcement of any impending significance. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as we normally do. Scripture tells us that we are to worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. And that language is carried on in other passages in the Scripture and connected to the idea of abiding in Christ and walking by the Spirit and walking in the light. And when we sin, we're no longer walking in the light. As Paul exhorts the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, you are children of light, that's our position in Christ, walk as children of light. So obviously we can be children of light and walk as if we're in the darkness. The way to recover is to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening. We're so thankful that we've had another day to <clears throat> live and to serve you, another day to be a witness and a testimony, not only to those around us, but also to the angels. Father, we're thankful that we have the uh, privilege of serving our Lord Jesus Christ in this life and to grow and mature in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful that with each day you give us that we can grow, we can mature, we can learn more about you. And Father, we pray that we might not grow weary in our uh, walk with you, that we might continue to press on, that we might have a continuous hunger and a thirst for the, not just the knowledge of your word, to know your word, but because that brings us closer to you and a greater understanding of what you provided for us, that you might be glorified in everything we do. Father, as we study tonight, challenge us with what your word teaches, that we may <clears throat> implement the commands that are, we fi find here in First Peter. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the previous lessons in Peter, going back to even the introduction, the focus of Peter is to address believers who are going through difficult times, fiery trials, he calls them at one point, that they are being tested, and they're being tested because they live in an environment of people, much as we do today, as I pointed out last week, that are in opposition to what we believe, opposition to Christians, and it is amazing to have watched the transformation that has taken place over the last 60 or 70 years in our American culture coming out of the Second World War. This nation experienced probably the high watermark of the influence of biblical Christianity, and we saw the, the growth of numerous uh, seminaries, numerous Bible colleges, the growth amazing growth of the foreign missions in this country as we sent out uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of missionaries, not, um, not 
in the normal way necessarily. And by that, what I mean is so many of these were men who came back from World War II, having gone to Europe, having gone to many different places in Asia, been in Africa, been all over the world, and having witnessed numerous cultures. They didn't come back with this postmodern idea that all cultures are equal. They came back recognizing that much of the world had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Much of the world did not know anything about the Bible, and they needed to learn it. And there were enormous numbers of men who came back and went to Bible colleges and seminaries to learn the Word of God and then to take it throughout the world. And just an um, unbelievable number uh, carried the gospel all over the world. And as a result, millions and millions of people have come to understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and they today have eternal life or they are with the Savior. Now, from that high watermark that occurred in the 50s through the early 70s, there was already taking place in this nation a rebellion against the Christian heritage. In fact, this movement against our Christian heritage probably has its roots in the mid to late 19th century, as I've pointed out many times. And what we're seeing today is the fruit that is born from all of that that took place in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. It didn't just happen overnight. It took uh, 30, 40, 50 years for it to really germinate and to grow, and now it is coming to full blossom. And so it, we've reached in our culture a critical mass of those who oppose the even the concept that there can be an absolute truth, that there can be an overarching truth that explains everything. They reject that. They reject uh, this idea of people believing in a God who is a personal, infinite God, and that there are absolutes related to every area of life. And for those who do now, because their numbers have grown so much, and because they find strength in those numbers, they are more outspoken, they're more, more overt, they are more outrageous in their demands and they have the financial resources and the personnel who have been trained and brainwashed in universities to attack uh, any kind of expression of Christianity as they find it and the hatred that they have towards Christians is just beyond our imagination. As a pastor I live in a pretty secluded environment I am mostly surrounded by Christians. I have a number of friends that are not Christians and not believers, but they sh still share a lot of my uh, my worldview. But for the people, many people who work and are involved in uh, different sectors of our society and our economy, they they live in and and tell me stories about things that are going on the opposition that they that they face on an ongoing basis and that's much like what we've been studying is the background for the recipients of first peter they are jewish background believers who are uh <clears throat> they face opposition from their families and from the their their former jewish friends and colleagues and business associates and now also from their former Gentile friends and business associates. And so they come under continuous pressure, and they are reviled, and they're blasphemed, they're slandered. Uh, all kinds of things are taking place. They're ostracized and marginalized from the uh, main culture around them, which is what we're beginning to see in our own culture. So a lot of this that we see in First Peter has great relevance for us. And as we have seen in the previous verses leading up to where we're beginning tonight in chapter 4, verse 7, is the constant uh, exhortation, the foundational exhortation of this epistle that we are to suffer as Christ suffered. He is our model. He was completely innocent. He was without guilt. Uh, he did not break any laws. He did not violate anything, yet they crucified him. And I have often said in 40 years of ministry that Jesus did everything right, and they killed him. 
So when we live a life that we want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not something that is necessarily going to win friends and influence people. In fact, it may set people off and it may trigger them in some great opposition and that's more socially acceptable today. And so as he uh, builds to the conclusion of this section that actually began back in chapter 2 verse 11 and extends to 4:11 where then he will change to his final topic in the main body of the epistle he is <clears throat> he comes to the point that we have to recognize that when we are uh, the targets of opposition when we are the victims of slander and malign when we lose our jobs when when people above us make up stories about us in our um, in our employment, or we have family members who continually ridicule us and laugh at us behind our back and you know make up things and that that this is the same thing that the Lord Jesus Christ went through, and that we have to recognize that our role is to put this in the lord 's hands we are Peter will come to a great promise for this in first peter five seven where he says, "Cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you." We put it in the hand of the Supreme Court of Heaven because, as he has explained in verses 5 and 6, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is an accountability in built into God's creation. We may not see it now. It may appear that, that the opposition is getting the upper hand. But that is because God in his grace is extending them time and opportunity so that many others may not, maybe not them, but so that many others will have the opportunity to hear the gospel and hear the response and have the opportunity to respond to the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. Until the Lord comes back for the church, that opportunity still continues for millions and millions of people in this world. But the question that we always should ask as we go through this is how are we to handle this opposition? How are we to handle this hostility, this antagonism? I mean, you look out on the, the political spectrum today and you get a glimpse of what is, what is happening spiritually when you see just the bitterness and the anger and the hatred that is directed towards the very fact that President Trump breathes. And there are those who have voted for Trump, but they are scared to death. If something happens to him, if he were to be impeached, then we would get Mike Pence. And what makes Mike Pence so horrible? What makes Vice President Pence so horrible is that he is a committed, Bible-believing evangelical Christian. He is a conservative. And these evangelicals have influence in politics, and that it scares them, and they hate it. And they hate those that represent God. And there is going to be, I fear, a backlash that if the liberal radical get in power again, that what they will attempt to do in order to shut down anyone who vocalizes anything close to a biblical worldview, that this is going to be, um, this is just going to be horrific. And the other thing that we have to think about in this is that there is a whole generation of young people, many under 40, most under 30, and a vast, vast, vast majority under, under even 20, who have been brainwashed by a very pagan system of education into thinking the, the worst things about Christianity. And they have been taught that much of Christianity is just hostile and judgmental, and, and that uh, as a result that, that Christianity needs to have their voice shut down. And you hear more and more people in recent years talking about, I mean, just the last year or two, talking about some level of restriction on free speech, uh, which you don't hear that from the right. You only hear that from the, uh, from the radical left because there's this opposition to anything that is different from what they hold near and dear. So how do we handle this? And what we're going to see in these coming verses is a summary 
from this section, as I said, that begins back in 2.11. We'll look at that in a second. And how we are to think. And ultimately, it begins with what's in verse 7. But the end of all things, well, don't have it there. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. If you read through this section in the English, in the English, it looks like there are a number of imperatives, that is, commands. They're translated that way, and that catches the sense of what is here from the Greek grammar. But the only actual imperatives that we have are in verse 7, to be serious and watchful in your prayers. The rest are participles that pick up that that imperatival or that command sense uh, from those opening opening commands. But the emphasis here is on prayer. Prayer is how, you know, one of the primary ways we handle what the opposition that we face. There are other things that we do, as we've outlined in the previous uh, three chapters, but <clears throat> here we have to look at this, this basic command. And the focal point here then is that because the end is at hand, eternity is close, that we must be watchful, we must be uh, serious or right-minded today. So we are to live today in light of eternity. That summarizes these next five verses. So as we conclude the previous section, Paul was, I mean, Peter was talking about judgment. And he says, as I pointed out in verse 5, they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And he says, for this reason, that is the reason of accountability, of judgment that is coming. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. That is, they've now died, that when they were alive, the gospel was proclaimed to them so that they could, in turn, grow and mature and be able to handle this kind of opposition in the culture. And that <clears throat> they will be judged uh, according to men in the flesh, that is, this opposition, this blasphemy, they'll be reviled. But they will live in the midst of that opposition according to God by means of the Spirit. Now, from that statement, he is going to transition in verses 7 to 11 to sort of a summary conclusion to what he has said. He starts off by saying, but it's a not a hard contrast. He's a soft contrast. He's saying, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, I could... Uh, sit here and say, well, it's obvious that when he talks about the end of all things, that he is talking about what he has just commented on, and that is the end time judgment, as we studied the great white throne judgment that will bring history to a conclusion. But we need to stop a little bit and talk about the verbiage that is used here and develop this out in terms of what the rest of Scripture says about this so that we can gain a greater insight and appreciation for what he is saying. First of all, we do have to understand context. Context is like the three laws of real estate, location, location, location. We have to understand what this verse is surrounded with and not only in terms of the previous two verses, but the previous section, which began back in chapter 2, verse 11. Now, the main, uh, that, that the main body of this epistle uh, started a little bit before that, but in 2.11, he addresses them in terms of their contact, context, that is, the context of living in a pagan environment that is essentially in opposition to Christianity. He said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Remember, these are terms that are used that are always applied to the uh, diaspora Jews. So they are the scattered Jews in the midst of a pagan culture. He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. The way in which we face opposition in this world, we understand that ultimately all opposition comes from Satan. 
that we are not at war, as Paul describes in Ephesians 6, 10 and following, that our warfare is against principalities and powers and dominions. And those are terms used to describe the hierarchy of demons. Ultimately, it is a spiritual warfare within the uh, angelic conflict that began with the fall of Satan, and we are not at war with the unbelievers around us. At times, it may seem that way, but we are at war uh, against uh, the satanic assault on the church and on God's people and on, on Christians. And so we live in this world that is not our home, And the way in which we have to address this is to avoid the fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And so this isn't just talking about when people read fleshly lusts, they immediately think of things such as, you know, sexual sin and temptation, or maybe they think of uh, alcohol or drug abuse, things that are related to physical sins. But, But all lusts war against the soul. And all physical lusts that you may think of are ultimately energized by our arrogance and our rebellion against God as we studied when we went through uh, this particular passage. But the focus here is on external things. So fleshly lusts can lead to anger and outbursts of anger. They can lead to disobedience to authority, uh, which is addressed in a number of passages going through chapter 3 and and, uh, into chapter 4. And so the reaction to or our response to hostility is that we are to have our conduct that is honorable among the Gentiles. We live according to a higher standard, and that higher standard is the, uh, are the standards of the Christian way of life that are outlined in the New Testament epistles. We're to live above the conflict. We are to not react to the hostility and anger and resentment and bitterness and the sins that come from that, but we are to uh, live our lives above, above that battle, conducting ourselves in a way that, has, that is honorable according to biblical standards, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... And now that we have gone through chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see that there's been this this theme that has gone on and on throughout uh, this epistle dealing with how, uh, with blasphemy and reviling and talking about Jesus, who when he was reviled, he reviled not. When he was blasphemed, he didn't return to the insults, all of those things. He was quiet. He was like a lamb without, uh, before cheers was dumb. He was quiet. He did not react in anger. That's one of the things that stood out at the cross. Typically, somebody on the cross would be uh, yelling back and yelling insults at their, um, at the men who were torturing them and things of that nature. So, uh, this is a major theme. They faced a lot of slander and hostility that was expressed verbally in their culture. So Peter said, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this is the idea that we are to respond and live a certain way, not in reaction to the hostility, but we should live ab- above that. So, we come to 1 Peter 4, 7. We won't get out of this verse tonight. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. If you've got the old King James, it probably says be serious and sober in your prayers. And the word sober, as we'll see, is one of those words that we often misunderstand because of the uh, problem with uh, alcohol or drug abuse in our culture and that's, it, it doesn't mean free from the influence of alcohol or drugs. It, drugs, it has a more significant meaning. So as we look at this, we have to break it down and recognize that there are uh, four key words in this passage. In the first clause, we have to understand what the end of all things refers to. And <clears throat> that is the word ta- telos in the Greek. And then we have to understand what it means to be at hand, needs to be near. What does that mean? And that is the 
uh, Greek verb engizo. So we need to break this down. When we get into the second clause, the conclusion, and the statement is, therefore, be serious and watchful, we'll have two more words that we need to analyze. So this is one of those classes where we spend a lot of time talking about the meaning of words and their significance. Words express ideas, and ideas have uh, consequences in our thinking. So we have to learn to think in a, a biblical way according to biblical terminology. So what does this mean that the end of all things is at hand? Well, first of all, let's break it down and look at uh, what we know about the future. We need to understand what this end of all things is. Obviously, this is a word that has to do with the future. Uh, is this the end? Does this come at the rapture, which is the end of the church age? Does it come at the second coming of Christ when he returns at the end of the tribulation? Does it re come at the end of the millennium? So here we have a chart with a prophecy panorama. We are in the church age, as we see in the lower left. And the unbelievers in the church age, when they die, they go to a place called Sheol, or in the Hebrew, or Hades in the New Testament. It's sort of a holding cell before the final judgment. The church age ends when Christ returns in the air, and we who are alive and remain are caught up to be with the Lord. The dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain are caught up to be with the Lord in the air, and thus we'll ever be with the Lord. The rapture ends the church age, but it does not begin the tribulation period. What begins the tribulation period is a signing of a covenant between the Antichrist and uh, Israel. This is described in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. So there is a period that is seven years long. We get that from numerous passages. The Daniel passage is also important because Daniel foresaw that there would be a period of 490 years designated for his people. That would be for the history of Israel. The first 483 years would be followed by a break because if you read through the passage, it says after the 483rd year, then the Messiah would be cut off. So the 483rd year ends, then sometime after that the Messiah is cut off, and then the temple is destroyed, and then we're told about the prince who is to come, who is from the people who destroyed the temple, that he will uh, eventually set himself up and he will uh, commit a, a desolation of the temple that is an abomination. He will set himself up to be worshipped in the midpoint of that tribulation period. During the tribulation period, also the dead will go to uh, Hades. They'll be in that holding pen. The judgment seat of Christ takes place, I believe, immediately after the rapture, before the seven years of the tribulation begins. The judgments in the tribulation are called uh, judgments. There's three series. There's the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And before the Lamb of God takes the scroll, which is the title deed for, uh, for planet Earth, before he takes that scroll from the hand of uh, God the Father at the beginning of Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, uh, there is a scene where the 24 elders, and I believe they, they are representatives of the church who are serving in the heavenly temple, they cast their Stephanos crowns before the throne. A Stephanos crown is a crown for reward. It's not a diademos crown. That's a ruling crown. They're called Stephanos crowns. So these 24 elders have already been rewarded. So the only group that can be that's already been rewarded would be uh, church-age believers at the judgment seat of Christ that takes place in human time. It could take place in just the blink of an eye, much like the rapture. So we have the judgment seat of Christ, and then at the end of the tribulation period, there's the marriage of the Lamb, and then the Lord Jesus Christ returns with his bride, the church, 
to the earth at the second coming. There'll be a series of judgments that take place at that point. Judgments for those who survived the tribulation, Gentile unbelievers, Jewish unbelievers, Gentile believers, and Gentile and Jewish believers. And then those who those who um, were unbelievers, they go to Hades. And then uh, this is followed by the millennium, the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. Now, this is where it gets interesting. There is another judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom, which we studied uh, in verses uh, 5 and 6. That has to do with the great white throne judgment, to determine, which is for unbelievers only. And all unbelievers are then cast into the lake of fire. The present heavens and the earth are burned up, and then there's a new heavens and new earth created going on into eternity. So when we look at this panorama of prophecy, what we see is that the end comes at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, why do I say that? I say that because the statement, but the end of all things is at hand, is correlated in the passage to the fact that they will give an account to him who will judge the living and the dead. It is connected to that judgment in verse 5, which ultimately speaks of the great white throne judgment. So this is important to see contextually in Peter that the end of all things, the telos, is connected to that great white throne judgment. Now, I'm going to make some points about this, but first of all, we have to really take a look at this word, telos. Uh, it's used 40 times in the Greek New Testament in 39 different verses. It's used 14 times in the Gospels. It's not used in Acts at all. It's used 23 times in the Epistles and three times in the last book, in the book of, of Revelation. Now, it's important to study out these words. And we always have to remember that words have many different meanings. In fact, uh, what word in English has the most meaning? Anybody know? This is a test. You heard Bruce Baker a month ago at the pastor's conference. Bruce said this. Bruce was wrong. I updated him today. Uh, It used to be thought up until 2011 that it was the English word set, and that set had 464 definitions in the Oxford English Dictionary. That's one reason it's difficult for people to learn English, is we have these words, and they have so many different meanings. And um, that it had, um, and that was the word that had the most meanings up until uh, 2011. And then in 2011, Dictionary.com claimed that the word run, uh, which had previously been thought of as having 396 uh, meanings, now has 645 definitions. Okay, so that was based on a study by NPR Radio, but we know they're they're liberal, so they produce false, fake news. But that was just a joke. Uh, This was also based on a New York Times article. So words change meaning, and we have all these meanings. So even biblical words, original language words, have a large range of meanings, some more than others. So how do we define contextually what a word means? Well, that's what we have to use is that context. We really have to take time to look at it and study it and work our way through it. And so I went through all 40 uses this afternoon, categorized them, and came up with all of the basic meanings. See, this is, when I went to seminary, we were taught that by the time we got our Master's of Theology, I don't think this is true anymore, hardly any seminary except maybe Chafer Seminary, is we should be able to do better work than anybody, than any commentary we could get. Now, commentaries have improved a lot in the last forty years, but at that time they were they were not very good, and so we we were taught we could do better work and would do better work in the original languages um, if we stuck with it, and that's true. Some people think, well, you're just being arrogant. No, this is what we were trained to do. Is we were tr- given the same training as the guys who wrote these books, and so you go through and you learn to categorize. Uh, the different meanings, and there are a lot of different meanings. 
Uh, sometimes it refers to the end of a person's life. In that sense, it referred to the end of Christ's life. It refers to the end of other people's life. It refers in a number of passages to the end of the tribulation. Passages like Matthew 10.22 and Matthew 24.6 talk about those who survive to the end will be saved. It's not talking about eternal salvation as Augustine taught. That's talking about being delivered from the tribulation period. If you That was in Matthew uh, 10.6 and also in um, Matthew 24.13. Those who survive to the end of the tribulation will be delivered. Be why? Because Jesus comes back, defeats the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon, and those who've survived are rescued and delivered. So there's a number of passages where it refers to the end of the tribulation, but you know it because of the context. It talks about the end result of the trials of Jesus, the end of Satan's kingdom in Mark 3.26 that uh, Christ's kingdom will have no end, interestingly, in the announcement regarding his birth in Luke one thirty three, It uh, talks about the end of Christ's life, uh, which was the cross in Luke 22.37, which could also be understood as the end result. That's another major meaning is that the word telos refers to the end, end result or the conclusion of something uh, such as Christ is the end of the law in Romans 10.4. It refers to the end of the ages, actually the church age in 1 Corinthians 10.11 is called the end of the ages. Uh, the, it refers to the end of human history in 1 Corinthians 15.24. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15.24, and we'll talk about that passage a, a little bit. It talks about the end of our faith, that is the end result of our faith, in three passages in Peter. In 1 Peter 1.9, it talks about, uh, that uses this word in the, as a conclusion of a series of exhortations. In 1 Peter 3.8, the end of all things. And 1 Peter 4.7, talking about the end result for those who do not obey the gospel of God. So it has a lot of different senses. In the main lexica, this will just summarize what I just said. Um, the main article in uh, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says it has the idea of the end, the conclusion of something, the close of something, or the goal of something. And BDAG breaks it down into five meanings. Uh, one, it's the end of a time period. The end, uh, it's the termination or secession of a period of time. And actually lists First Peter four seven as uh, that, <clears throat> as as that that meaning. Uh, second, the, it's the last part of a process, the closer conclusion of a process. Third, it's the goal toward which a movement is being directed, the end goal or outcome. It can be the last in a series. Or it can, in a really weird sense, it refers to taxes or custom. Next week you pay your telos to the government, your contribution to the federal government on April the 17th. So these are the basic meanings. So when we look at this, we see from 1 Peter 4, 6 that we're talking about the final judgment in 4, 5, and 6, and so that's the idea here. Now what I want you to do is we want to talk a minute about this passage in 1 Corinthians 15:24. Now I'm addressing this for a couple of reasons. One is it's important for us to try to put some things together the best we can when we can. And number two is because uh, at the last pastor's conference, a paper was presented which was outlining a an older position in dispensationalism, one held by Clarence Larkin. If you've ever looked at his book on dispensational truth with all the pretty charts, uh, he was an architect by training, so he drew out all those charts. And also by several other theologians, a president of Moody Bible Institute, who later became the general editor for the Schofield Reference Bible, and as well as some others. So we just want to look at this idea uh, and one of the problems I had with this is I pointed out uh, when Bob gave this report, I said, 
that a number of pastors had listened to this. It's not an off-the-wall view. Obviously, very well-respected dispensationalists held this view back at the turn of the century, but nobody's really taught it in the last hundred years. The only reason that we can think of, because there's no critique of it that survived from that period, is that this was not... I mean, it was just overwhelmed by the popularity of the Schofield Reference Bible. The last person who wrote on this and defended this in print was Clarence Larkin. So what I'm going to do right now is put on the screen, it was up here a minute ago, here we go, a Clarence Larkin's book. I don't know that you can see that, so I will expand that a little bit. And he talks about the fact that there must be a perfect kingdom in the in eternity future. Okay? And the point that is made in this argument is that during the millennial kingdom, Jesus is ruling with a rod of iron because there is opposition to his rule. And we understand that there are so many... Um, unbelievers at the end, that when Satan is released at the end of the millennial kingdom, that they are said to be uh, basically with, without uh, number. We're told that when this, in Revelation 20, verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations or the Gentiles probably, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle. Now, they haven't had any military academies or anything of that nature for the last thousand years. Uh, they've destroyed all their weapons, uh, everything. They, they haven't learned war at all, according to Isaiah chapter 2. And so they basically are going to be marching against God. This is what I facetiously call the 100 million man march. And they're all about to go up in smoke. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. They are incinerated on the spot. All the whole number. They are... Um, they are without number. Their number is as the sand of the sea at the end of verse 8. And then we're told the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and all of that takes place. So that is the end of the millennial period. Now I want to go, go back to what First Corinthians 15 says starting in verse 24. Let's get the context. He's talking about the evidence and the importance of the resurrection. Verse 22, he says, For as, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, <clears throat> but each one in his own order. And that word for order has to do with rank, that there are different resurrections, and each group is going to come. It's a military term that would be used of of, of uh units of the military marching in order before a review stand. And so he talks about Christ as the first fruits. And afterwards, those who are Christ's at his coming, that would be the church. And then you have others that come along. And then he skips to the end and he says, then, in verse 24, he says, then the end, when he, that is uh, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So there's this transaction that takes place at the end. Now that word for the end there is the word we're looking at in First Peter. It is the same word. It is tatelos. Both have a context in the future. So he says, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to the Father. When he puts an end, and now that word for when means at the same time. At the same time that he delivers the kingdom to the Father, he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. That's what happened when uh, God the Father in Revelation 20 incinerated that 100 million man march. They, they don't have weapons. They are coming to in opposition to the rule of Christ 
and <clears throat> they are incinerated at that point, and then the kingdom is purified. See, this position that, I want to go over this, that, that is outlined by Larkin. He says, when the renovation of the earth by fire, uh, he says, time does not end and eternity for, begin after the, with the new heavens and new earth. He says, there will be a perfect kingdom that Christ shall surrender to his Father so that God may be all in all. It is a kingdom in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He then says, This describes a kingdom in which all things, celestial, terrestrial, and, inf and infernal, I'm referring to the demons, are to be subject to the Son of Man. Now this perfect kingdom, he says, cannot be the millennial kingdom, for that, as we have seen, ends in apostasy and rebellion. But my point is, it doesn't end in apostasy and rebellion like all the previous dispensations. Because in the previous dispensations, God does not incinerate and vaporize all of the unbelievers. That's what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. The kingdom on the earth is, at that point, completely purified. Those who survive are believers. All unbelievers are, are taken out. He says, uh, he goes on to say, it must therefore mean another kingdom on the other side of the millennial kingdom. This is where I think that this position makes a mistake, is that they have argued correctly that the millennial kingdom is a time where there are going to be many unbelievers. These are the ones that rebel against Jesus at the end of the millennial kingdom. They are like, they're numbered like the sand of the seashore, but they're going to be uh, incinerated right there at the end so that the kingdom is purified. Now let's see what, what we read in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Now this kingdom has been purified by the Father who incinerated all of the unbelievers. Therefore, at that, he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. That was destroyed at that particular time. For he that is Jesus must reign till he that is the uh, I think it's it, until I think that's uh, either the Father or Jesus. It's it's unclear. Could be Jesus, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. I, let me go back over this. He that is Jesus must reign until he God the Father has put all enemies under his feet. This is Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1 is one of the most cited Old Testament psalms in the New Testament, and the Psalm 110 is one of the most important for understanding uh, Messianic prophecy. David says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, that is the word Adonai, so David recognizes that my Lord is in authority over him. Well, who's in authority of the, uh, over the king of Israel? Well, nobody. So both of them have to be deity. Yahweh says to my Lord, that's a reference to Jesus as the Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So the Father is the one who's going to reduce the enemies and make them the footstool of the Messiah. So that fits with verse 25, for he, the son, must reign till he, the father, has put all enemies under his feet. All enemies, that's the fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. But let's look at the next verse, verse 26. The last enemy will, that will be destroyed is death. That occurs when that rebellion is put down. That last enemy, because there will be no more death after that. All the unbelievers are destroyed physically. That is physical death. There will be no more death after that. For he, verse 27, which is a quote from Psalm 8, 6, for he, God the Father, has put all things under his feet, referencing Psalm 110, 1 again, um, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. That is, the Father is accepted. 
Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son also will be subject to him who put all things under his feet, that God may be all in all. And at that time, this is when Jesus turns the kingdom over to the Father. So I think that that always bothered me, but I never had the time to really work it through uh, when we were in preparation for everything, looking at all that, it was a new position. Many of us had never heard it. But I think that's that's the key uh, exegetical problem with that position. And just because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going off into left field somewhere, I called uh, Bruce Baker, who I respect very much in his studies on this. And he had the same problem I did, but neither one of us quite had articulated it. And so I, he called me back at a quarter to seven. Said, "Am I? Is this interrupting anything?" I said, "No, I just have to get dressed and go to teach Bible class." But let me run this view by you to make sure I haven't gone off into left field somewhere. And his response was, "He said, I think you nailed it. I think that's exactly what what's happened here. That 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 explains it very very well. So we connect the dots here that." When you see the word telos in verse in First Peter four seven, that that connects to the judgment of the great white throne, which tells us that um, the the end of all things occurs not a thousand generations into eternity when a perfect environment has been created and a perfect kingdom has been in place for a thousand generations, but it occurs when the Father purifies the kingdom and destroys the enemies of the Messiah, and that's when Operation Footstool comes to a conclusion when all the enemies of Christ are are defeated. And so that makes a tremendous sense uh, putting those passages together. So we have that first word, telos. The second word is the word ingizo. That's the verb form that is uh, listed there. The form in the text itself is in, 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 excuse me, ingikin. When you have that double G for those who know Greek, it's pronounced like an ng. It's a perfect tense. That indicates completed action. But the end of all things is at hand. That is, its nearness has happened. Now, this is interesting because this word shows up at that perfect tense as completed action somewhere else, many places. It's used 42 times in the Greek New Testament. Let me go back. Some people say, how can it be near? That was 2,000 years ago. doesn't seem very near to me. It's near because it is the next big thing that happens after the conclusion of the church age. The church age ends. You're going to see the coming of the, um, the, uh, the Antichrist rise up, and the tribulation is seven years in a 1,000-year kingdom. You have a, a countdown there. All of that happens. But it's that end of the church age that is imminent. It's uncertain. We don't know when it's going to happen. But what we do know is when the church age ends, then it's going to domino through the tribulation and the, and the uh, millennial kingdom. So this word is used 42 times in the Greek New Testament. And in 41 41 different verses, the cognate is another word that's used many times, 31 times, and it's ingus. That's the noun form. Now, it's most commonly used in the Gospels. It's used in the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's always in a perfect tense. It has been, you know, its presence is here and available. that's, That's the sense there. In the, in, in the Gospels. And so this was the message of John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven is near. Did it come in? No, it hadn't come here yet. You don't have Jesus on the throne. Jesus isn't on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. The Israelites, the Jews have not turned back to God. The new covenant is not in effect. None of these things have happened yet. So it, it was near in proximity. It, they had the option, but because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the kingdom was postponed. So it's used in that sense. So it, it therefore it has this sense 
of imminence, but it doesn't mean that it actually happens in nearness of time. It is a word that can refer to nearness in time or nearness uh, in place. Several times it has that this sense that Peter uses it uh, in warning us that we need to live today in light of the end, in light of judgment that's coming, in light of being prepared for eternity. Romans thirteen twelve says the night is far spent. We've had darkness up until the coming of the Messiah, and now the light of the world has come into the world. The day is at hand. Now, therefore, when he says the day is near, he's not talking about the church age. He's talking about the coming of the kingdom. The day is near. That is the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. It's near. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light so we're prepared for the coming of the day. So it's used in that same sense that this day is near. We need to be prepared for it when it comes. Hebrews 10.25 We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. It's the same word, okay? Because the day drawing near, we need to be prepared. You're prepared by studying the word, by spending time together as believers coming together ultimately to study the word, not by forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. It's important for believers to come together. You encourage each other just by looking around the room and saying there's other people here. And the more, the more uh, encouraging it is. So the fact that this is near is to encourage us to be more obedient and more faithful in study. This is the same thing James says. Uh, you also endure, be patient, establish your hearts, that is, your soul, strengthen your souls for the coming of the Lord is near. We need to be living today in light of eternity because judgment is coming. And so uh, this reminds us of Hebrews 9.27, and that is that uh, it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, we need to be prepared. So we see this again in... Um, Romans thirteen eleven. Uh, do this knowing that ta- knowing the time that now it is high time to be awake of sleep. Don't just sleep your way through the church age and your Christian life. But now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And then in Revelation uh, one three and twenty two ten, it also continues to exhort the church age believers. It's written to that the time is near. Okay. So what have we learned from this? Number one, we have learned that that the end is near means that we need to be prepared for God bringing human history to its conclusion. And that is near because uh, with the church age is spoken of many times as the whole period as the latter days, not just the end of the church age, but the whole church age. Paul, uh, Paul talks about this to Timothy. He says, we're in the last days. The last days started with the early church. And when the last days ends, that's then the conclusion of prophecy bringing everything to its end is near. So that's the idea there. It doesn't, it, it, it's related to the doctrine of imminency, uh, but it, not, it, it, it doesn't teach it. It, it. it has that idea behind it that we don't know when the church age is going to end, so we need to be prepared. Um, Revelation 1.3 gives a blessing on those who read and understand the book of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near, that exhortation to be obedient because the end of human history is at hand. Now, what we're supposed to do with that is to pray. And we'll come back and talk about this. I don't want to rush through the last part of this verse, uh, but we have to cover this next time. because, And I find it fascinating that at the end of this, because it's near, because of the proximity of the end, we are to be in a right mind. That means an objective way of thinking. 
that word that's translated right mind is a word that is used to describe the uh, Gadarene demoniac after the demon is cast out. He sits down, he's back in his right mind. Uh, And the word for uh, translated sober, self-controlled, has the idea of objective, clear-headed, unemotional thought that that should characterize our prayer life. I never thought about this verse before, but it's a good verse against the charismatic movement. Because when they pray, they pray in tongues. That cannot be described as being in your right mind or or sober or self-controlled because you don't know what's happening or what's going on. But that is what is described here is a warning. Life is coming to an end. We need to be prepared Therefore, be serious, be in your right mind, and be sober, have objective thought in your prayers. And then the rest of these verses are going to basically correlate to that command and having to do with having a fervent love for one another, being hospitable to one another without grumbling. There's a lot of convicting things that can be said about that. Uh, Paul says in Philippians uh, chapter 2, we're to do all things without grumbling or complaining. Let's move on to the next verse. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. We are to serve the Lord. You can't do that sitting at home and not being involved in a local church. You can't serve one another. Serving one another, you can't exercise your spiritual gift to the unbelievers and pagans you work with. See, a spiritual gift is given to serve other members of the body of Christ. And so this emphasizes the importance of being involved with a group of believers. And then final exhortations is to do all things in a way that glorifies God through Jesus Christ at the end of verse 11. So that brings this section to a close, and we'll come back and look at what it means to be in your right mind and to be sober or self-controlled in our prayers or for the, literally for the purpose of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be encouraged by your word, to come to understand a little bit more what it means, of the proximity of your coming and that we always need to be prepared whether our life will end with the rapture or our life will end with death. We need to always be prepared. Either could come at any moment. And we need to be prepared and we need to recognize that we face opposition in the devil's world and that therefore we are to live a certain way. We're to conduct ourselves a way that, in a way that brings glory to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.